Welcome to the Ben and Tony podcast. And today we're joined by the Middle Eastern tech legend and community builder, Rasha Gamlush. Because Rasha has been operating so deeply in the Middle Eastern tech scene since its very inception, this episode is not only Rasha's story, but also a lesson in how to navigate the region's business nuances and its communities too. For anyone with a passion for the Middle East, looking to move their business into the region, or simply wanting to hear an interesting story, you need to hear what Rasha has to say. She brings this story to us with warmth, with depth, and with a kind spirit and easygoing nature. Rasha has an awesome energy that will inspire you. Perhaps the best way to describe her comes through a story she tells us about setting up a tech conference in Saudi Arabia. I pictured Rasha as a young, idealistic 23-year-old, boldly trying to do something that hasn't been done before, sometimes even breaking the rules to get things done, and pushing forward by a desire to have a positive impact on young entrepreneurs across the region. And she's kept that same energy throughout her entire career. With so much opportunity that's often undervalued or misunderstood in the Middle East, Rasha Gamlush is one of the best people in the world to help educate you on how to think differently about the region. And we are very, very excited to be sponsored by the Making Lemonade Fund, Gen Z's fastest growing fundraiser, supporting COVID-19 relief, pediatric cancer, and a bunch of other great causes. Get behind them over at makinglemonadefund.com and sponsor made by our very own Jesse K. And this would not be possible without you guys, our listeners. So hit that subscribe button. Uh, we're on Spotify, Apple, and also YouTube. We really, really appreciate you guys and hope you enjoy the episode. We're, we're here with uh, Rasha Gamlush. Um, you're a pioneer of community building in emerging markets, uh, particularly in the Middle Eastern tech scene. You led the charge in the region. You know, you've run more than 100 tech events across the Middle East. Um, and importantly, you know, you've been doing this for more than 10 years. So you're genuinely an OG in the region's tech development. Um, you know, where did your journey begin into becoming this figurehead in Middle Eastern tech? Um, hi, first. <laughs> welcome, <laughs> Thank you welcome. For, welcome, <laughs> welcome Thank Rasha. you for having me. Um, honestly, I think I kind of tripped into this unintentionally. Um, 2010, this was like the early days of smartphones, of Facebook was still only for colleges. Like you had to be a college student. I was in college. I graduated in 2010. And, um, you know, I, I was always a geek. I, I was studying multimedia design at the time in college. And part of my curriculum was um, web development and J uh, coding for uh, JavaScript for uh, uh, a dead program right now, which is Flash. <laughs> so I used to write uh, Flash script, actually, sorry. So, um, and I was really interested in that space, but like there was little community or understanding of what is going on in that space. And it felt really cool to be in a place where or around people that wanted to build things. Like they, they, they saw things they wanted to change and they just went and wrote a code and an app for it and you know, just made it happen. It was such a fascinating and amazing thing. And being in a design major, bringing all these design thinking and problem solving thinking into the room was, was kind of fun. At that time, um, you know, that, that environment didn't exist. I tripped over this conference called Arabnet, which was like this first time it ever happens in the region. Um, everyone was on Twitter. We were just a bunch of tweeps basically at, back in the day. And I reached out to them. I said, hey, I'm actually in the UAE, but I'm planning on coming to Lebanon uh, over my spring break to shoot a video for my graduation project for college. And I wanna come to this conference. And they're like, cool. You know, can you help us tweet about it and spread the word? And I did, and I flew over and it was, you know, everyone was just helping everyone. It was, it was a conference, but it wasn't a conference like we know today. It was really, when I got there, it was everyone I knew from Twitter was there. <laughs> this was like a massive tweet up of 500 people from all over the region, people were carpooling from Jordan, uh, 
you know, 2010, the, the, the problems in Syria had not started yet. So people were carpooling from Jordan. It's a five-hour drive uh, from Amman to Beirut through Syria. And people were coming in from Syria, from Egypt, from all over, because like me, there were just a whole bunch of people that had, you know, were looking for similar-minded, crazy people that wanted to change the world for whatever reason. Um, and we just sat there and tweeted and met amazing people. I still know most of the people I met that day or those three days we were there in Beirut. And since then, we stayed in touch. I moved in to Beirut the year after, ran into the founder in an event, and he said, oh, you're in town. Come work with us. And I said, um, what? And he said, I don't know. We like, I don't know, you support us so much. You were there with us on the first event. You help us make it happen. Just, just come. Well, and well, can I ask a quick, quick question about that? Like, it seems like such an interesting close knit community at an early stage in like the Middle East tech scene. Was there a specific catalyst? Like that person you're working for, was that like ArabNet? Was that the very first event? Was it someone's idea? Was it like a initiative yeah. by a government? So, no, so the founder, uh, Omar Christidis, who, you know, like kind of a shout out to him, um, he basically had, this happened obviously 2009, which was the inception of the idea, was, you know, just after the economic crisis happened, uh, just moved to the Middle East, uh, realized there are no tech events, um, and just wanted to meet people like, you know, like himself, who are just passionate about making things and doing things that are different and also like building things um and decided you know his 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 family business is an event and he's like okay i my mom knows how to do this thing this is our family business let's just try this thing the worst thing that's going to happen is you know we'll break even yeah well we'll have a party and we'll break even and it's fine um and it just gained traction so I mean, obviously, it was a lot of hard work. A lot of people volunteered their time and were there just helping and promoting and and pulling things together. Um, you know, like people people from all the, we had they had speakers from the UK at this event, from the US, from from Asia, from all over the world. Who at that early stage in time, if you think about it, 2010, how many tech ecosystems were vibrant outside Silicon Valley and maybe London? Mm-hmm. Like not many people anywhere in the world had much going on in their, their local ecosystems. So people were really hungry for like-minded people anywhere around the world. Um, by the time the next event happened, I was already on the team um, and it was just, you know, it, things just fell into place. I joined in the team in 2011. Um, we did our first event in Cairo then. It was miraculously the single week that's, that fall that there were no protests in because that was kind of the, the, the Jan 25 revolution lead up, basically. We literally got away with that one week the moment our flight left, it was just chaos. <laughs> but the energy every city you go to is contagious. Like if you go to Cairo, every single city in the region is very dear to our heart. And me being kind of a Lebanese person living in the UAE, growing up with people from all over the Middle East and North Africa, like, like I lived in a community of expats, of people that are from, uh, every single country in the region, really, like Tunisia, uh, Egypt, uh, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, all these countries, you feel a lot of the similarities and you feel like kind of a, you feel like really passionate about these countries because you, you've grown up with them all your life. So, and this is, this is something that like the whole team within the company had in common. We were all in a way, third culture kids, like we, most of us did not grow up in our home countries. Uh, the founders um, actually studied in the US. His parents are not originally Lebanese. He grew up in Lebanon. Uh, his grandfather is actually Greek. Uh, so like these mixed culture kids coming together and feeling like this, not nationalism, but passion about making 
that trumps nationalism and passionate about like empowering their communities around them, regardless of who these people are. Like it's really, this is kind of the energy that was in the room all the time. It's like, you know, I don't care what your passport is. Um, we really care about you as a maker and how you can make it. Beautiful. That's really amazing. Yeah. And, and how did you, um, you know, how would you market this across all of these different countries who are involved? Was it just word of mouth and having contacts? Twitter. Twitter. Um, what was it? You, you copy, I think people underestimate the power of just picking up the phone, calling someone and saying, Hey, we want to come to your city and do something cool. We think you're really powerful in your city. And can you help us? You know, like we want to do this thing. Um, and, you know, we'll put your logo on our event and we'll promote you on our all marketing material, be our partner. <laughs> um, I think this is, I don't, I really believe in the power of partners, like this give first approach and, you know, ask for help when you need it. Like give people credit for helping you and ask them for help. There's absolutely no shame in that. Um, and you'll be surprised how much people are willing to open doors and help you out if you are humble enough and if they think, you know, you're doing something cool and you're being very passionate about it. The, the way you describe this awesome group of people, very passionate third culture kids in a way, and it's like early, exciting Middle East tech scene. It sounds like something from like early days of Silicon Valley, but I guess the Middle Eastern Silicon Desert, whatever, whatever it's called there. Um, now, I, I wonder if this was like one of the big transitions in your life, because it's not like you planned this, right? You weren't in school no. studying to get into tech, obviously. Uh, was there a moment that you pulled the trigger to make this happen? Um, was it uh, kind of unexpected? Or is there like a moment you look back on and think like, wow, that was the day my life changed. My, I became a, a tech person. Um, I don't, like I, I don't necessarily think there's like one day I, I'm very, um, like, I, I don't have strict ideas on where I want to be in life. Mm -hmm. I feel like I have a mission I want to achieve and, or, or like life goals I want to have personally, but how I get there is not so important. Like it's mm -hmm. important that how I get there is ethical and it's compassionate and, you know, that's, that's matters to me, but then the details in the fabric don't really matter, matter, you know, like I just, I like serendipitous kind of things, like things that just happen. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would be sitting in the office one day and it's like, oh, listen, we need you to fly to Jordan this weekend to do something. I'm like, yeah, cool. Yeah. I'll mm -hmm. go to Jordan, whatever. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I didn't study design because I thought I wanted to be a designer. I studied design because I felt like I looked at the curriculums in the university I was kind of going to, and I was like, okay, I love maths, but I don't want to be a mathematician all my life because I'll go crazy and it's very antisocial and I like people. I like mechanical engineering, but that looks really boring. And this looks fun. I'm just going to do this. And whatever I learn from this, I'll apply it in my life somehow. <laughs> so it was not really like I had a plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. totally. And, and how did the things evolve over like the? So you spent 10 years, is that right? Working in, or no, that's just in the event side of things. How many years have you spent working on it? And like, what was the evolution? Because I know a lot of people um, listening to this might not have any idea about what the Middle Eastern tech scene is like. Like, how did you see things evolve from when you started to when you then moved on to your next thing? So I was in uh, Arabnet for seven years, uh, seven and a half, almost eight actually. Um, when we started, it was obviously the, the demographics of the region. And I mean, 2010 to 2020, the Middle East looks, 180 degrees different from what we used to be. Uh, 2010 was the beginning of, um, you know, kind of the Arab Spring in a way, the earlier days of the Arab Spring. There were movements happening around the region, but the Libya was not where it was today. Iraq was, Iraq was kind of, it was already, the war was already there, but Syria was calm. Um, you know, there was no, uh, 
there, you know, Mubarak was in power in Egypt, like the whole region looked really different. Um, UAE was rising, Saudi was completely different from what it was today. Um, the Lebanon was still where a lot of the global headquarters were for business. Really? So PNG's headquarters were in Lebanon. All the conferences used to happen in Lebanon because it was, you know, there's a casino in Lebanon. It's very liberal. It's the party center of, of the region. So all the media awards used to happen in Lebanon, all the advertising conferences, the banking conferences. This was the conferences um, kind of like the Aspen getaway that people like to go to, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just naturally happened there. By 2011, um, and the other reason Lebanon was, was an interesting pivotal point was um, most nationalities around the region don't, or actually most nationalities from all around the world don't need a visa to enter Lebanon. You just pay for visa on arrival and you enter. So this, this is what makes it really easy to do a conference there uh, for Arab nationals because visas restrictions for Arab nationals traveling in the Arab world are a little complicated. Um, and the two biggest markets from a developer perspective were in Jordan and Egypt, which are both less than an hour flight from Beirut. So it's very easy for people to get there. You know, it's, it's kind of a, an easy getaway uh, for people to go and come back for business. Uh, so the first three years, the key ArabNet event was in Lebanon. By 2012, the, the security situation in Lebanon was not great because of the Syrian war, um, which, you know, Lebanon is like a tiny little slither next to Syria, which kind of envelops us on all other three sides. Um, and that was really increasing the, the, the security situation in Lebanon as well. We were, you know, we did 2012 very nicely, very peacefully. It was a five-day conference. It was a fiesta. It was really exhausting, but really rewarding. <laughs> By 2013, we felt like, you know, we were scared of, um, you know, it was not safe to, to over-encourage people to come. So, and business-wise, a lot of the headquarters had shut down and they had started moving to Dubai. So naturally we were like, okay, uh, we need to move this to the GCC where all the business is moving right now. This is the headquarters of business. And this is also the biggest um, consumer purchasing power in the region and the natural progression of the market moving forward because of the security situation. Um, ironically, our first conference in the, in the Gulf was not in Dubai, it was in Saudi in 2012. Um, very different market from what it is today. Yeah. Uh, I think people thought we were crazy. You know, what are you going to go do in Saudi in 2012? Uh, we had so, a lot of internal debates about this. Yeah. So can we dive deeper on that? Because again, I feel um, a lot of people who might have zero experience with the Middle East would be interested to like learn about that specifically. Like, so Saudi now versus Saudi when you hosted those events, um, what, what are some for someone who has like maybe no experience in Saudi Arabia, like what about it has, has changed dramatically? Rule number one is everything you see on international media represents only what they want to tell you about their international policy. That's mm -hmm. it. it. It has nothing to do with reality. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Saudi, I mean, 2012, women were not allowed to drive. Uh, cinemas were illegal. Uh, there are... Hmm. There are no co-ed schools except in compounds. Uh, there was no co-ed universities except one that op opened a couple of years later. Um, it was very, very, very restrictive. Getting a visa into Saudi, there were no, there was nothing but a business visa for you to enter the country. And the only way for you to get a business visa was to get a sponsor that is willing to sponsor you to come into the country through a business visa. Um, it was, uh, you know, we, <laughs> we broke the law a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, if me and a coworker were to get in a cab together, that's illegal because he is not related to me in any way. Uh, 
we did do that. I mean, the law doesn't say that anymore, yeah. but we did. <laughs> um, we, we used to get permits to do uh, mixed gender events, which were illegal, unless you had a permit and then you would be assigned, you know, like there will be uh, people from the police that will come and check that you are following the rules for a mixed gender event, which would like be, you would have to partition the, the room uh, for a male seating area and a female seating area. Um, and there'll be blinds in the middle so that they can't see each other. Um, there, there, like there was so many things that we had to deal with, but it felt like, like personally, when, when we first went, a lot of people were like, what are you going to do in Saudi? There are no entrepreneurs in Saudi. Like these people are, you know, they're not innovative. They're living in this very restrictive society. And I said, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like the more restrictions there are, the more people are looking for a space to vent out. You know, they're, they're looking for an outlet. And this was the time when um, Saudi comedians on YouTube were a thing. Like, they were huge. They had millions of views. Uh, yeah, you'd find these guys, like, and they're really talented. You know, like, it's such a, a red line society they know how to step on that taboo line and not cross it. Like they'll stand on it and they'll tantalize you. Yeah. They'll never cross the line. <laughs> I'm so fascinated. Like, can we, like, wait, wait, what are some names of Saudi, like I'll have to look it up later, like Saudi comedians, because I'd um, love to just see this. <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, mo all of it will be in Arabic. Okay. I don't know if, <laughs> no, um, okay. I don't know, I don't know if any of it is going to be in English. Most of it yeah. is in Arabic. Like there was, um, oh my God, there was, uh, uh, I don't know. I know the names of the guys like Ibrahim Saleh and uh, Badr and Omar Hussain, like these, all these big, amazing guys that are still around today. But that was the time where people started paying attention to Saudi and saying, there's a lot of energy that these guys are dying to you know, kind of vent out. And yeah, they're using YouTube. And, yeah, and, and they're using all these, whatever is available to them to vent it out. And they're doing it so smartly that, you know, they're not getting in trouble, but they're, they're touching that line where people are like, so tantalized, like, oh my God, these guys are going to get in trouble, but they're not going to get in trouble because they did it so smartly. Um, and the, the thing, like after the first event, you go into the room and you realize, you know, entrepreneurship ecosystems, makers are the same everywhere. It's not about what country. I, I'm sure if we go to the most remote country in the world and we meet people from the tech ecosystem there, they're going to have the same contagious energy that any tech event has because, I mean, it's the energy in the room that, that you, can, you, can, you can see in Saudi or anywhere. Um, that year, we did a mashup of all these videos, all these celebrities and these shows, we did a mashup of it for about, like it was like maybe 10 minutes of the top clips and how funny they are. And in the conference room, we played it on the big screen and we had a 12 meter by four meter screen, an LED screen, like a really high resolution one, which looked like a cinema screen mm -hmm. in 2012 which was a conference screen, you know? Yeah. This is like our conference screen, but the people in the room left. I saw a friend of mine after he was leaving and he's like, I teared up. This is the first time I see Saudi guys on a cinema sized screen in my country. This feels amazing. And yeah. I was like, oh wow, I didn't realize this is what we were doing. That's wonderful. <laughs> Like, please, amazing. please don't tell the authorities we, yeah. we had a cinema show. <laughs> <Get> in trouble. <laughs> yeah, it's, but, but for them, like how this is what it felt like to them because, you know, this is um, what they've been deprived of. Deprived yeah. of. Yeah. Uh, obviously, since then, cinemas have opened, women drive, uh, women have so many positions in power right now, you know, they're in senior government. Um, not only is there cinema, there are funds for cinematic production. There are authorities for music, poetry, uh, publishing, 
culinary arts, tourism visas. Right. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's I, I, just. I had a, one question as well. Like, so you mentioned, um, uh, you know, obviously a lot of the laws were basically stacked against, you know, particularly women um, through the Middle East in these early days. In terms of your, your, how you were received by the people who were attending these events, it, se it seems like they were pretty receptive to you being, you know, a figurehead of the community that was building. Is that true? Or were there some kind of limitations and reluctancies about kind of letting you in uh, as a woman in the, in the space? So all of these restrictions are purely Saudi. I grew up in the UAE. I've, I've never put a headscarf on. I've never had a yeah. problem going anywhere. If anything, um, people... I mean, if you come to the UAE, women get away with a lot of things. And you get like, if you're a female trying to get any paperwork done in a public entity, they'll fast track you to make your life easier. So you get pampered as a girl in, in the UAE. Um, this is really purely Saudi. Um, it helps that I'm not a local. So I speak Arabic as a Lebanese and I speak English and I look like a non-Saudi. Mm -hmm. I behave like a non-Saudi. So just like when you travel to any country where you're the foreigner, you kind of get a lax treatment of, you know, what, what is expected from, 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 from the locals. Um, all of us, we were all young then. Like I was, when I first went to Saudi, I was 22. Mm -hmm. uh, I looked pretty young. Everyone, on our team looked so young. So people, did not feel like we were threatening anything. They felt like, you know, these are a bunch of kids, kids that, that are really passionate and want to do something. They're so yeah. cute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was kind of, I think that kind of worked in our favor. It, it felt like we were, we didn't feel threatening to anyone. Um, if we came in with, you know, these diplomatic shoes or whatever, I don't know, we might've gotten a different treatment. Um, but we also were very um, respective and we followed whatever they asked us. Like, okay, this is the policy you have to follow. Like, okay, sure, we'll follow whatever policy you want. We're fine with that. We don't care. Yeah. We really just want to bring this empowerment message to the region. We don't, we don't really care about, um, we're not here to change your norms, you know? Mm -hmm. we're, we don't, if you want to segregate, that's kind of your problem. We're, we're okay with it. We're connecting them online. It's fine. Yeah. I think that's... that's also so powerful how you said that you know this message of empowerment and your friend who you said was tearing up because he's like wow the first like cinema quote unquote that i've seen in saudi i think people take for granted how how much like power can come from an event especially in a place where people haven't had that you know i think like all of us on this on this call you know you, you think about oh just event number 1000 in tech in london or in san francisco or in new york like oh rolling my eyes i don't want to go to another event but there's so many parts of the world uh, where that is still, and this was obviously like 10 years ago, but it, it just, there's so much beauty in that, that I think people tend to underestimate uh, if you're used to that. You know, if you're used to the idea of like the comfort and the obviousness and the accessibility to an event, like having one, if you don't have those circumstances, is just so impactful. Yeah, it's, it's also really fascinating to hear about like the relationship um, between comedy and, you know, expression and, tech building, you know, building companies and the, the, the desire to do that. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's, what's really interesting to me is um, obviously, so one of the things about the Middle East is uh, there's different dialects. So the Arabic that, you know, you speak in Saudi is different from the one you speak in Morocco. Um, if you're not exposed to different dialects and you're really lived in a one city all your life and that's your native native dialect, you might not understand someone from a different city in the Middle East because the dialect is so different. Um, and we had a lot of people that, that would come to us and say, you know, how do you understand this comedy? And I'm like, I, I grew up in the Gulf, so I understand the culture, like the culture is kind of similar to what it is in the UAE. I understand the restrictions. And I kind of understand the dialect as well. There's certain terminologies I wouldn't understand. And then I kind of get the gist from the rest of the jokes. But like being able to experience somebody else's culture through comedy is really fascinating. And it's such a, um, I, I still watch Saudi comedy today. Like a lot of these guys now have their shows on Netflix. Um, Netflix recently added a show called Masamir, 
which is um, an animation. It's like comic animation that kind of makes fun of society as well. Uh, they, um, they got their entire backlog portfolio onto Netflix recently and signed a five-year deal with them to create exclusive content for, uh, for Netflix. And it's something that like some people might be able to relate to, some people might not. I find, I haven't, I feel like the US and, and Saudi have so much in common uh, in, in ways that um, they might not find so flattering. <laughs> but, but there's a lot of things like, for example, you know, very nationalistic, especially in, uh, you know, central states. Like they're very nationalistic. They're, uh, they have very similar like taboos of, you know, cultural taboos, like don't talk about us, you know, don't talk mm -hmm. about our negativities, you know, we're this, we're that, you're this, you're that. Uh, the obsession with oil, you know, our oil economy, the pride in their oil economy, all these kinds of things where you're like, I've, I could see at some point an American watching this and being like, oh, this is funny, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like there's so many like, life lessons um, that come out of the tech conferences that might have not as been expected when you just dove in on that. Um, did, did you, or what happened as your next transition period after working in that? Did you, were, at, after seven years of working at ArabNet, what, what did you think you had to do next? What was the, the plan or what happened? So at some point I felt like, so, you know, seven years, this was 2018. Uh, the ecosystem had changed massively. Uh, we had, you know, a, a few unicorns in the region already. There was, you know, we were the only event and then suddenly there was hundreds of events, thousands of events of conference of, of these little conferences, not conferences, like meetups and things that were happening. Um, there were so many business plan competitions and also increasingly all your traditional conferences that handled banking and travel and whatever started talking about tech. So they had this like captive audience and tech was the natural progression of their market. And I felt like, I don't know if a massive conference is the right vehicle for building a community anymore or, or changing today. Um, the market is so big that, in 2010 and 11, you could put on a panel called social media and, you know, and talk about all the latest things that happened in social media in the past six months. If I tell you social media today, you'll be like, what in social media? Like, are we talking about advertising? Are we talking about pixels? Are we talking about content, about influencers, about which platform, TikTok? Uh, you know, like the sky's the limit. You can run a full week of content purely on social media um, and like maybe one aspect of it, not even everything, because there's so much to cover. So there's way more specialization in the market. And that means that for you to cater to a broader audience, your content has to be slightly shallower. And therefore you're, you're really starting to create beginner content and beginner content doesn't create communities like depth does. And this is where I felt like, okay, I'd rather work on smaller, more intimate things. How can you take what we had in 2010 as this intimate gathering of, of crazy people that wanted to change the world to, to reflect that into today's, today's the, uh, you know, the landscape of specialization. Today, you can't get a developer that does everything. Like a full stack developer is really difficult to have a senior full stack developer that does everything for you. Uh, and even then, like how many languages are there to, for today for development? It's just like the tech space is everything. It, everything you breathe is tech right now. Um, and so I wanted to, to, to try to build something outside that space and say, how can we build something for maybe product managers or you know, doctors that are online or I don't know, all these little pockets of, of people that are doing things that are tangential to tech or part of tech or, or just live online because we can live online right now and doing so many things online. 
time. And that was the reason I felt like, okay, I don't know what that looks like, but I know it doesn't look like a conference anymore. It looks like something else. And um, kind of that was why I said, okay, I'm done with this. I'm going to figure this out. I don't know what it looks like. <laughs> so, so then, so by, by literally, you mean to like kind of quit with an idea, quit your job and said, let me spend some time thinking about what's next? Yeah, I was like, okay, I'm going to quit. I'm going to think about this. Also by like no attempt of, uh, no, no attempt of mine, um, someone I know that works in tech calls me and, and, and VC calls me and says, hey, you're kind of cool with this community building and event stuff. We want someone to do this for our portfolio companies. Why don't you join us to do this? And I'm like, okay, this is the thesis I want to pursue. Why, what do you think of it? And they're like, yep, this is cool. Come work with us. Let's try this. Um, what was and this is how- what, what, what niche were you going into? So it was, so it was basically, I joined them to do um, community building for their portfolio companies. So how can we aggregate the community, uh, their founders together and build better relationships with them so that it's not always, the VC doesn't have to always broker these relationships. So they're kind of building a community where they feel they could tap into each other and they can kind of help each other out without the need for always for, for you to always mediate these relationships. Um, and how can you add value to them through other kind of means, you know, whether it's events or finding their common pain points and solving these common pain points through whatever partnerships that can be created, et cetera. Um, it was fun. Uh, it was interesting. It really broadened my understanding of VC and um, really made me uh, think of how portfolios are designed as well. Like, you know, you, a VC invests in portfolio companies based on people they like and believe in. And that also means, you know, there are some similarities between these founders that could really create interesting relationships, but also these similarities can create interesting disparities between them. Um, it's, I think VC, a lot of VCs are trying to do this now. Uh, it's like a global movement um, called the VC community, basically. Like, how do you build this thing? Um, uh, value, value add offerings for your, for your portfolio companies. Uh, it's interesting. It's not easy. It's definitely hard to scale um, and requires the right mindset to build. Uh, you know, for, I, I don't know many VCs around the world that do a great job at it. And recent Horowitz is, is one of the case studies that everybody loves to look at, but you know, they did not start at the end. <laughs> Uh, it took uh, quite a few decades to get there. So, um, and, and increasingly more and more VCs are looking at this as a model. Uh, whether you look at, you know, what um, Eric Tarnberg is doing with OnDeck or, um, you know, YC is doing right now with their YC school. Uh, all these guys are trying to do community-based activations around their investments and how they can take that to the next level and build a moat around them and differentiation on why they should invest in you and not someone else. I was super interested um, in, in what you were saying about, okay, so um, obviously, obviously there was a lot more kind of Western funds, startup attention being kind of put into the region over the period of time that you're working uh, in the Middle East, right? Over this kind of 10 year period. How did that change and affect the kind of dynamics within the region? Um, so, so far, most of the international investment is not at early stage. Most of it is at later stage. And usually what happens is, for example, your lead investor is a regional investor and they have a very strong relationship with someone in the UK or the US, et cetera, and they help get them on board. Um, so they even rarely are on your board until really later stage when you're at the level of, you know, General Atlantic is putting like a hundred million dollars in you or something like that. Um, 
they still are not on the ground opening doors for you yet. Everyone except 500 Startups. 500 Startups is the only fund that has been active in the region for a very long time now. And that's mainly because, um, you know, Dave McClure at the time had very good relationships with the tech ecosystem here. Uh, he was angel investing and co-investing with Fadi Randur, who was one of the OGs of investing in the region. Um, and he came to the Middle East quite often, spoke a lot of our, in a lot of our conferences and was really vested in emerging markets. He kind of really wanted to take this vision of 500 startups and taking it to emerging markets. At the same time, they were building 500 startups in, in, you know, in Asia and, and different places around the world at the same time. And they did set up a Falcon Fund dedicated to the region uh, early on. Like this is the, the very few international investors that are aggressively active in the region. So far, most of the international ones are coming in at a later stage, not at the early stage. Um, what's really made a difference is not necessarily the international investors, but once we sold, you know, once Kareem got sold to Uber mm. for $3.1 billion, suddenly everyone that has money in the region was like, oh, wait, people can make money from this? <laughs> yeah. Let's diversify. Right. And, and, and this is where, that was the same year uh, Souk was sold to Amazon. Um, Talabat had just sold a couple of years before to Delivery Hero for $200 million. Uh, actually, it was $160 million. And then Carriage for $200 million, like, there were some really big exits and that made a lot of the people in the region turn around and say, oh wait, there's money to be made here. Yeah. What are we missing out on? And, Do these include and, the folks who are like high net worth individuals or is it- kind Family of offices mostly. Right. Plenty of money in the middle family East. Family offices. Yeah, there's- <laughs> So the, the, what happened mostly with international investors coming to the Middle East, especially when we used to invite them to speak out in Saudi, They'd say to me, oh, listen, I'll come out to Saudi if you arrange for me a tour for me to fundraise for my fund in Silicon Valley, uh, uh, you know, from these family offices. Yeah. And I'd be like, um, <laughs> no, you're kind of missing the point here. I yeah. want the money to be spent here, not there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, there are a lot of savvy family offices here that do already and have already been investing in Silicon Valley for a very long time. Uh, the Kuwait uh, investment, Kuwait Sovereign Wealth Fund is a yeah. very active investor in the US. You know, they have big stakes in Apple and Google and all the big plays. Um, they've kind of, and, and there's a lot of these family offices that have been very actively investing abroad for a very long time. Yeah. Um, people were not aware of it because it was not, in the spotlight as much as it is today. Um, today they talk about it more and it's more evident and they're doing it more aggressively as well. Uh, so that's when we started to see things change, when we started seeing exits. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I guess, you know, that, I mean, a, a lot of Western institutions and investors are kind of looking at the region with hawk eyes right now, thinking, you know, how can we get hold of a lot of the wealth that's, that's available in the Middle East? Um, but what you were saying before about kind of just how intertwined the politics is in the region, um, the different regional nuances, which you obviously know like super well yourself. Um, what are some of the limitations if you're a Western institution trying to look at investing in the region um, that you might find? And, you know, how have 500 startups been successful in their ability to, to kind of entrench in the, in the place? So 500 startups did a very, very smart move, which is one, they looked for the one Arab on their team in Silicon Valley. And they said, hey, Sharif, we're assigning you to the Middle East. <laughs> and then they, um, and you know, they hire, the, the two guys that were leading their fund in the region are Arabs. Uh, and they were Sharif and Hassan. They just left their fund and launched a new fund uh, on their own. Uh, but they picked people that one were were from the region and they understood the region and they yep. spoke the language, they understood the culture. So they did not try to you know, hire someone who didn't understand the region. There are, 
I won't name names, but one of one of the top guys in Silicon Valley. Name, name, name. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not. We're, we're <laughs> no. One of one of one of the top players in Silicon Valley um, tried to open an accelerator here by bringing out some guy who worked in oil and gas back in the '50s in the Gulf, um, for, and, and not even from the region, to come out and build an accelerator in the region. <laughs> that didn't work. Was was that was that met with a lot of reluctance? Like you know what what. It wasn't about reluctance. It's about like, how do you navigate? Like this person was really like, I met the person a few times and the poor soul was really finding it hard to navigate this ecosystem. Like oil and gas in the sixties is a completely yeah. different game from yeah, tech in 21st century, you know? Yeah. Um, it's not, uh, it's, it's a completely different game. And, and this was, I think this is kind of the, the most thing that uh, unfortunately we face a lot, which is decreasing a little bit now. Um, like a few years ago, a lot of the people that you'd meet coming out of Silicon Valley or the US or the UK would be, you know, the your typical money guy coming in a suit, coming to talk to you about investment. And you're like, but this is not a private equity deal. We're talking yeah. about VC terms here, you know? This is a completely different game. And these are not your government execs. These are like your your typical entrepreneurs that barely the know how to build ideas. a business. Right. Yeah, yeah, they're they're not. It's not the same game. Uh, so one, sending the wrong people. This tends to be like a common mistake. Two, um, a lot of the time. I mean, it's very easy to set up in Dubai if you're a foreigner. It's super easy. It's English friendly. Uh, you can do, you know, you can grow in Dubai and it's yeah. very, you know, it's very friendly to live in. Yeah. But Dubai does not represent the Middle East. Dubai is an English speaking city, English first. It's very multicultural. It's very diverse. Um, but it only represents itself. Like if you're, if you've set up in Dubai and you're doing great, unless you understand the nuances of Arabic language and of Arabic culture and these details, it's very difficult for you to expand into uh, neighboring cities, let alone another country. Um, and I, I see this a lot, even with not people that are coming from abroad to set up in the UAE, but even foreigners that are in the UAE or even um, English speaking Arabs that are in the UAE, that don't see the importance of having an Arabic platform for their business. Mm -hmm. um, they, they get to a certain space and then they, get a, they hit a roadblock and they can't grow any further. And then they wonder why. And it's really because they're not catering to the right language. Um, and people see through, like people, if, if you're using Google Translate for your website, people can tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, for your advertising, for whatever it is, you have to be authentic, and being authentic is really important. Yeah. And presumably, that's not just with um, you know, the writing, but associated with the the nature of the message and making sure that resonates with different folks in the Middle East as well. Yeah, and and we see this a lot. Like I see, you see Uber. Uber launched in the Middle East. They were competing a lot with Kareem. I, Uber still doesn't make money here. Um, and at some point they realized Kareem just did it better. Like yeah. Kareem had uh, cash on delivery from the beginning, which was very important for the region. They had customer service, which Uber doesn't have. Uh, they had a call center you could call. They had, now they, like, now that the app is more popular and, you know, it's so ubiquitous, a lot of people use it, you need it less. But at the beginning, you definitely had to have a call center. Um, there was lots of little nuances that whenever people tell me, oh, this is a startup that's a copycat of something abroad, I really find it funny because you can never copy something from the, from the US, bring it to any country around the world as is, and for it to work. It's just never going to work. Yeah. You have to build for nuances. Yeah, and, I, 
I, that's so interesting. And, and I think I'd, I see something similar with fear of Chinese tech startups entering the US as well. I mean, there's like, a, okay, they hit a certain scale in the China and there's almost like, a, okay, they're, they're going to come over here eventually, right? They're going to come into the America, but they have to get so much cultural nuance correct. American people are obviously very different from Chinese. So it's not a kind of, you know, you hit scale and then suddenly you're, you're able to get into America. And I think yeah, it's a similar situation here. Yeah, like, like if, you, if you want to build a community on Slack in the Middle East, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why aren't you using WhatsApp? Like, that's what everyone uses. Yeah. Everyone's on WhatsApp. Um, you know, like, it's almost like going to China and telling someone to send you an iMessage. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> it's like um, how, you know, Rocket Internet how part of their model was kind of trying to aggressively copy and bring things to other markets. And while they did okay for a little bit, it's my understanding, like they've, they've struggled because there's only so far you can go without uh, having a pretty deep nuanced understanding. Yeah. So I think that rocket internet did eventually was um, they're very aggressive on acquiring companies as yeah. well. So I remember 2012, um, 2013, actually, uh, I was really following uh, Delivery Hero and um, um, Food Panda and how aggressive they were in kind of acquiring, they were like really growing, but they were acquiring like 12 startups a year, basically in, in Europe as part of their acquisition strategies and their growth strategies. And they came to the region. They, Rocket Internet did acquire startups here and then um, they invested in Delivery Hero in Europe. And eventually they moved all their food delivery assets all under Delivery Hero. And then now they own like 5% of it only. But if you're in Dubai today and you want to order food online, you are almost absolutely using Delivery Hero no matter what app you're using. They're, they own the top three apps in the market, Zomato, um, uh, Talabat, and Carriage, they kind of, they, they rebranded Carriage into Talabat as well. And these were the top three and they own all three. Um, and so they, they're, uh, and, and they only did it by acquisition. So they tried to bring in their own stuff at the beginning, but it just, it didn't work. They acquired the big guys and they doubled down their investment. And that's what they're doing now. They're continuing to acquire new companies. Yeah. They're in Pakistan as well. Um, so considering what you're doing with this, the VC, like if, if you move on to the, maybe like the last transition of what you're doing now, or let, let's, how do, how do we want to frame this? Like when you were working with the VC, what was your plan for what happened next? So I, um, after a certain point, we kind of, you know, delved a lot into these startups and their need and setting out the strategy and the plan. I felt like, you know, when you're working with VC, with their portfolio companies, you're helping a handful of people. And I really like working with a lot of people. I like, I like having this autonomy of helping, not, not feeling like, oh, I can't help these guys because they're competitors, you know, like this kind of, um, I, didn't, I didn't feel like I was ready to make that commitment to these startups yet. <laughs> Although to be fair, that, that VC was one of the top VCs in the region. They have a phenomenal portfolio. It's one of the best portfolios in the region. Um, you know, the startups in their portfolio are earmarked to be the next unicorns. They're really great. Uh, but I felt like I wanted also to be you know, doing more and scaling more knowledge to more people. Before I joined that VC, I was already kind of doing the side thing of sharing daily news with people on Telegram, just because whatever, I felt like it. It was just a thing that I wanted to do. Absolutely no plan, absolutely no reason for why I did it or why I didn't do it. Uh, it was just something I felt like I did for myself and it would take like five minutes extra for me to write it up and to send it to people. So I just did. Yeah. And uh, I felt like, you know, there is, 
like I, I want I want to continue to do this and I don't want it to be restricted to a specific group of people. I want to do it for everybody. And I'm really passionate about like, how can you, I feel like there is not enough added value content in the region for entrepreneurs, even around the world today. There's a lot of basic things that are not available for you to understand how to set up your business, especially as more and more people become entrepreneurs or want to do side gigs or understand how this ecosystem work and become makers. Um, so I felt like maybe this is, I'm not ready for VC yet. This is not really where I want to be. Um, I didn't leave with a plan again. <laughs> you did I, leave I don't, with like a, a vast array of uh, wisdom, knowledge, yeah, you, yeah. network. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really bad at, like my parents hate this. I keep telling them, oh, I kind of left my job. It's like, why did you get something else? I'm like, no, I'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like, okay, uh, I I'm kind of want to figure out what I want to do. I feel like this digest is really the digital digest that we're working on still now it's like it's been going for three years one year of really actively doing this and then three two years before that of just me serendipitously just doing this on daily basis a full commitment so um, can you explain like is it, it yeah yeah it's like it's a daily 30, newsletter 30 what, what what, who should read it what is it okay so the digital digest is your daily ag like curated summary of the top tech news in the Middle East and North Africa that is delivered via WhatsApp or Telegram. Um, WhatsApp or Telegram because these are the most common platforms in the region. Uh, and this is where people want to get their daily, you know, little notification of, hey, you've got mail. Uh, and email on daily basis is like, you like emails to be prettier on daily when you get them. And, you know, your, your messages don't have to be pretty. I don't have to worry about that. Uh, people that subscribe to the Daily Digest, uh, the Digital Digest are aspiring entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, consultants, VCs, LPs, um, really anyone that works in tech in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, people that are not interested in getting the news on daily basis. We have a summary that comes out in one email on Fridays that they can subscribe to. And you know, instead of getting a ping every day, they just get one email in their inbox on Friday that gives them a summary of everything that happened that week. What we cover is, um, we like to think of ourselves as the, the missing middle. So we're not just, hey, this is a startup that raised money. We cover fundraising, but we also cover policy changes that impact startups so mm, you know if a visa point. policy changes or um you know there's a new data 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 privacy law that comes out or something like that yeah. but also um uh we you know startups policy economy so reports around the economy around smart economy anything really related to the economy in the region as well as um what regional investors are investing in abroad. And this is kind of one of those things that people don't understand why we're so obsessed with. But I think once we start getting into a few years of data, we can start to see the trends and things, how they change. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's very fascinating. In the past few years, for last few months, for example, since July, um, the top sovereign wealth funds in the, in the region have been heavily investing in health tech and infrastructure of health tech delivery. And this is kind of leading towards vaccines, the delivery of vaccines yeah. and related to the pandemic. And you can see it, like you could see them investing in these, like um, these, these companies, whether they're early stage or late stage companies that are in that space that they were not investing in last year. I'd also be fascinated to know like where they're investing in terms of geography. Like, cause if you're, let's say Kuwait sovereign wealth fund, you could probably have access to deal flow around the world. So if you're saying, okay, there's some interesting stuff happening in I know, the Philippines or something, then you'd be able to tell some sort of trends when it comes to the growth of let's say tech in the Philippines. And, and this is kind of our thesis is 
if you want to be an informed investor or an informed entrepreneur, even an informed consultant, today you want to be able to see these trend lines from a macro and micro perspective. You want to be able to say, um, you know, this government is super interested in this space and this is what they're doing about it. Mm -hmm. And it's important for you as an entrepreneur to be aware of these things as well, because what we've seen very clearly throughout the, the few past years with the SoftBank Vision Fund and, you know, the very active Mubadala Fund and PIF in Saudi and Mubadala in the UAE is a lot of their global investments in tech startups eventually they want these startups to come to their region and it's part of their investment thesis. So they'll invest in um, Hyperloop, for example, and Hyperloop, part of the research is to do Hyperloop in Abu Dhabi, for example. They invested in WeWork and WeWork, well, you know, maybe WeWork is not the best example <laughs> to talk about right now, but, um, you know, recently uh, Mubadala invested in a scooter company, uh, Tier Mobility in I believe it's in Germany. I, I, I have to double check that, but they've invested in that last year and this year they launched in Abu Dhabi. Um, so seeing these things for you as a startup are important because if you are looking to launch a startup in that space, you need to identify who your potential people that are moving into your market are. You can't go out and say every single scooter startup in the world is going to be my potential competitor but you know there's one startup that the sovereign wealth fund of the country you're 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 operating in has invested in likely could be your competitor yeah and that kind of helps you keep so this is the kind of this is the way we think like we think because i've been i've been working regionally for a very long time i i really think regionally and i also try to look at all the the tangents that intersect with the region yeah. and kind of keep that knowledge in breadth. So this is the value we add to people, hopefully. Um, we're dabbling, adding more analysis, more trends that people can look at, identifying, uh, for example, we wrote a piece recently about a new funds that have launched in the region in the past uh, year. And we identified um, how many like actually just literally way more than usual uh 20 new funds that launched until october um which is a lot you know that's like yeah. less let's like two funds a, week, a month basically yeah um and and like really what is the differences between between them what what spaces do they target and and this is the kind of information we think is really interesting that others are not covering so mm -hmm. we're not to tech we're not too general business we're like that that middle ground of you know helping you build your deck if you want if you're a yeah. startup and you're trying to identify your market like hopefully we'll help you build your deck sounds like yeah, the best I absolutely resource. love it yeah fantastic and so so if i'm a vc and i'm looking to hire someone who's in oil in the 50s and instead <laughs> i decide to go for the digital digest how do i sign up how do i how do i get hold of this information so um, you go to digital digest, digitaldigest.me. Uh, it's a little dingy website. It's um, being relaunched, but it's, it leads you to all our links. There's, the, the website is very basic. All the information is really in the newsletter and in the groups. Uh, you go there, you, you just decide what platform you want to join us on. You click on it, you click the language. It's bilingual. So we do everything in Arabic and English on daily basis and weekly basis. And, um, and you just, you know, just sign up and you're part of the community. Um, it's, we, I don't know if we're replacing you finding a good person to run your fund yet, but uh, we, we'd be happy to help you find someone if you want to. So, so you offer kind of consulting services as well on top of this? So because of the digest and because of like our experience, so there's the digest is run by me and uh, a friend of mine, Farah Nakuzi, uh, who both of us actually used to work at Arabnet back in the days in 2010. Um, and we moved kind of in different paths in our careers and then kind of came back around this because we really both are super passionate about this community. Um, and what we, because this, I mean, the digest is free. 
for people. Uh, anyone can sign up. We are looking at monetization models, but we are, we are still feeling like the market needs more help than pulling money out of it at the moment. Uh, what we do on the back end is we offer consulting services for people that are looking to set up in the region, uh, understanding the market and, you know, kind of how to navigate the market, who's who and what's what. But also um, our, our real big passion is community building. Yeah. And what we're really been focusing on uh, right now is transferring our knowledge of community buildings throughout these years into helping VCs or startups or really anyone that wants to build a community around their products uh, or their services to, to know how to do this and how to, how, to, um, how to build a community and add value to people with this give first approach without being, um, without blowing up their money and not getting their right ROI. Because I feel like a lot of people feel like community building is a cost center and don't know how to measure impact. Whereas you can be very genuine and transparent and build communities, but also um, have a, make, make uh, use of this community in the long term if you know how to build it right and be very genuine, genuine about it. Well, I absolutely love it. You spoke with so much passion. So um, thank you so much, Russia. Look for it. We'll see you in Dubai sooner rather than later, hopefully. God, they really need to get more vaccines out. <laughs> <laughs> let's 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 all like do a New Year's prayer for more vaccines. <laughs> I'm in. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Russia. Thank you so much, guys. It was such a pleasure. It's been awesome. Oh, really awesome.